And welcome, welcome, welcome to the Africa Football Showdown. My name is Daniel Dazi and I'm joined by my co-host Mimi Fawaz in Abidjan. Mimi, what's up? What's up? I'm doing very well, Daniel. Thank you very much. We've got a couple days rest now as we get ready for the semifinals on Wednesday. I wonder what's going on in the minds of those super eagles and especially the Ivorian national team as well. It must be crazy in, in that camp currently no actually i spent time in the super eagles camp uh, just a couple days ago and everybody's pretty relaxed to be honest um we were watching the penalties um in terms of ivory coast my goodness the celebrations i could see the point their match too i was watching it with fans and my god they were all jumping up in celebrations and yesterday when we were driving we saw the ivorian team were arriving back in abidjan with their police convoy and let me just tell you that their hotel is blocked off nobody can get close so that it can leave them to concentrate, which is fair enough for the big okay. match um, on Wednesday. Amazing. So you've already got a sneak peek, if you're listening, of what we're going to do today. Because we're taking you inside Nigeria Super Eagles camp ahead of their semi-final clash with South Africa's Bafana Bafana. And we'll also be charting the improbable path of the other semi-finalists, the Leopards of the Democratic Republic of Congo and the hosts... The Elephants of Ivory Coast, whose drama on the pitch has been backed up by the country, running so far a superb footballing spectacle. We have an incredible lineup of guests. That's all coming up on the Africa Football Showdown. Welcome. Joining us to talk about the AFCON today is Ahmed Shubil. He is a senior writer at Versus. He's been covering the tournament, and his recent articles have explored the themes that AFCON is proof that Africa does not need the rest of the world to thrive. Ahmed, you're with us in London. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Happy to be on, man. Thanks for inviting me. Happy to have you. We also have Maha Mazahi. He's a sports journalist and he hosts the Africa Fiberside podcast. And he's just returned to All Jazz from Abidjan where he posted a podcast every single day with some of the best journalists covering the game. A man singularly devoted to African football. Maha is in Algiers. Hi, man. Hey, thanks for the introduction. Very happy to be on with yourself, Mimi and Ahmed. Now, I want to start today by just getting a sense from Ahmed and Maha. Um, we've been discussing during the last episode that this AFCON has been more lucrative in terms of sponsorship, prize money, and has been spectacular on the pitch. Now, Maha, let me start with you. Um, but everyone, please feel free to come in when you feel like. You were there until yesterday. Does this tournament feel different? And are there conversations or things you saw covering this tournament that's brought this home? Yeah, honestly, I don't think I felt too much of a difference in terms of the glamour or the glitz of the tournament. I think that's been pretty constant throughout the four tournaments for African Cup of Nations that I've covered. I would say where this one is very different and in a positive way is that we discovered a country in Cote d'Ivoire that it really is home to so many different communities and diasporas from West Africa. Uh, being in Abidjan, you can see whole neighborhoods of Burkinabi, Senegalese, Guineans, uh, Malians, and seeing all of those communities come together to celebrate this tournament, uh, seeing them head, go to the stadiums uh, and pack them out. I think that's what's made a really big difference is that you really felt like this is all of West Africa that's hosting this tournament, not just Cote d'Ivoire. Mm, mm. I feel you on that. I feel like it's one of the reasons why we've had you know, such big turnouts as well. A lot of the well-performing teams have been clustered around Cote d'Ivoire, apart from, you know, their neighbours to the east, Ghana, who crashed out at the, at the very beginning. 
Um, Ahmed, you've written about this tournament displaying an African spirit of self-reliance. There have been a lot of um, cheap and sort of lazy narratives, especially from an outsider perspective. I'm covering this from London, looking at it from a European lens, so to speak. Like, I think what this tournament, this particular AFCON has done, it, it, it's slowly undoing those lazy narratives, like the poor quality of the football, you know, the standard of the officiating, uh, you know, the, the, the general chaos that people associate with Africa, not just African football. And I think because, as we know, AFCON is just the great equaliser, like everybody starts at zero. It doesn't matter where your accolades, your club accolades come from. It doesn't matter um, what kind of competitions you played for. It doesn't matter about your prestige. When you come to this tournament, everybody starts at zero. And I think that's what makes the story so rich. So when I say that AFCON doesn't need Africa, it's just to say that this is a tournament that was looked at as a scourge by vast swathes of European football. Uh, Jurgen Klopp made some sarcastic comments. Uh, the Napoli president came out and said he wouldn't sign African players because of this tournament. And I think now we're starting to see um, a much more wider appreciation for it outside of the, the continent as well. Um, and that's what makes it so self-reliant. I think previously covering the tournament from London, uh, from a European lens, it's sort of been looked at as a bit of a scourge because it happens in the middle of the season. It's disruptive to the European football calendar. But when you speak to African people who are covering the tournament, who support teams in this tournament, they look at it as a complete opposite. So when I speak about the self-reliance of AFCON, that's more so what I'm getting at. Mm -hmm. It's quite interesting that this conversation comes up at this time when we are talking about how this AFCON sort of redefines even quality-wise. But my concern, um, uh, Maher, and this is something we talked about last week, is how we maintain this. What does CAF do to sort of maintain this sort of quality? How do they even capitalize on the opportunity that this, this tournament has given them? Well, the first thing they can do is they can make sure that the most deserving or the best qualified hosts actually get the tournaments. Uh, we had a period in between 2012 to 2017 where we had Three tournaments go to two hosts, Equatorial Guinea and Gabon, with, who, with all due respect to them, probably weren't ready uh, to host the tournament, especially Equatorial Guinea hosting it all by themselves in 2015. That's partly not their fault because of the Ebola crisis, but we had pitches being flown in in Mongomo, for example, two weeks prior to the tournament starting. So actually having the right hosts, selecting them based on their actual bids, I think that's going to be 90% uh, of the work. And the next one being in Morocco, I think we'll also have great organization, great stadiums, great everything. You know, they know how to throw a football tournament. They know how to throw big events. So that's that's a big part of it. Other than that, I think CAF and FIFA, you know, we like to harp on them a lot. But I think they're doing a good job helping out some of these smaller federations or smaller teams through programs like the FIFA Forward program. Take a team like Mauritania. Mauritania qualified for three consecutive African Cup of Nations now. You know, 10 years ago, they didn't have a national technical center or a federation headquarters. They didn't have a medical center that they do now for their athletes. So that all came through FIFA Forward Funds. So the fact that FIFA are helping out some of the smaller, quote unquote, nations like Central African Republic, those two things are, I think, ways that CAF and FIFA can move forward and assure that we continue to have this kind of quality in future competitions. If I can just of... add to that briefly. So, yeah, sure. um, like, I think it's also about leaning on what makes AFCON so unique and like amplifying that to a bigger audience, like the dramatic upsets we spoke about earlier, like the atmosphere in the stands, the passion, like the post-colonial pride that each nation has. Like it's also, it's it, like CAF has to find a way to market these niches to a wider audience because I, I feel like 
there are a lot of people with this current edition who have woken up to African football and it's important that they capitalize on that. And so I'm of Somali heritage. I'm from Somalia originally, but mm. I grew up in the UK. It's a bit painful for me to not see Somalia at the, at the, at the AFCON, even though every other team feels like they're enjoying all my Nigerian friends, my, <laughs> my Ghanaian friends, my Ivorian friends, my Congolese friends. But no, it's, it's still a, a bit of pride for me. But what I take most pride in is seeing the diaspora players, the likes of Alex Awobi, uh, Adamola Lukman, uh, Ola Aina, like they're having such a wonderful tournament. Um, and I, I, I back that embrace wholeheartedly. I actually spoke with um, the CEO of the PFA, Mahetsa Malongo, who's of Congolese descent himself. And he's been at the, uh, the, the tournament himself and he spoke about how important it is. It's actually like a, a proper initiative that they want more players who grew up in the EFL system and the English football system to go back home and represent uh, who, who, whoever, whatever their country is. I think it's a, it's a really good sort of trend that we're starting to see. I really like the idea of going back home and sort of demystifying Africa, as it were. I think I think that's a very powerful thing that this tournament's done as well. Demystifying Africa, uh, Maha, do you think that that moment is where we are at currently? With you know, I, th- I think Ahmed's touching upon very important points, and these points are particularly important, as he's pointed out a few times, from a European perspective. And you cannot have a really good African Cup of Nations without the European perspective, because of like, like you mentioned, so many players being from the diaspora and, uh, you know, us needing to publicize, you know, this tournament in all four corners of the world, but especially in Europe where, uh, you know, we know that football is a Eurocentric game at the moment. And that's the, really the heart of football. Um, but really these are, I think, talking points also f- yeah, for, for, I think European observers watching the African game, uh, me personally, like I don't, as somebody that's, you know, been living on the continent for the last decade, I don't hear too many locals talk about demystifying Africa because they live here. You know, <laughs> there's nothing to demystify about it. But I do understand and appreciate his point, And I think it's very important to do that. But, you know, when you talked about the domestic talents, I was reminded of Ghana's uh, former president, who is now a presidential candidate, talking about, you know, revamping the black stars after the poor performance in the AFCON. It's becoming quite political, uh, you know, guys, with the budgets being brought up. And it's not just Ghana. The ANC in South Africa would love um, Bafana Bafana to win. I know the, the opposition EFF has been very vocal about football. It's become a very important thing politically, right? You know, Macky Sall from Senegal uh, just announced that he's going to be postponing elections indefinitely. Um, the elections were supposed to happen on the 24th of February. And, you know, in Senegal, just like in Burkina Faso and other countries across West Africa, they have this really cool ceremony where before the team goes off uh, to the African Cup of Nations, the president will come and hand them a flag and he'll give them a speech, a motivating speech. They'll take the flag with them. They have to keep it with them the entire time. And whatever happens at the tournament, whether it's three consecutive losses and a group stage exit or whether they win the the entire thing, they have to go back and give the flag back to the president. And uh, I just think about... Mm. Would he have postponed these elections if instead of Senegal going home at the end of January, if they're going back on the 12th or 13th of February uh, and handing that flag over as well? I I don't know about that. I I also think about, you know, uh, I mean, it it is inherently political. All of the look football in Africa in particular cannot exist without its governments. Governments, federations are heavily, by and large, heavily, heavily reliant on subsidies from uh, departments like the Ministry of Sport. So. Even uh, uh, a really good FA president like Fozi Lapja, who's done a fantastic job with Morocco, he's a minister delegate in the Moroccan government. So, 
you know, Morocco doesn't have a proper footballing strategy if they don't have a good political strategy behind it as well. So these things are inherently political. And of course, politicians are always going to try to surf on, uh, you know, good results of their national teams. And they're always going to try to distance themselves away from, from bad results. But I think that that's pretty much a global mm-hmm. phenomenon, I would say. Definitely. There's a, there's a lot to touch on in this conversation. But maybe let's move it up on and take us into that Super Eagles camp once again. Now, you, you were telling us about that penalty shootout between South Africa and Cape Verde. Who did, from from what you were seeing, who did Nigeria want to face out of the two teams? So that's something I definitely cannot tell you. I do I do know because different people told me what what their opinions were, but I, I that's something I have to keep off the record. <laughs> so I won't be able to tell you that. However, I can say that Nigeria is prepared or they're preparing or whoever their opponent was going to be. Yeah, but how was that experience like sitting with all these stars? We haven't done oh, it, it was exciting. I mean, it was exciting because some of the players in Cape Verde play in, in, in France and some of the Nigerian players play in France. So they were familiar with some of the players. So it's always interesting to hear when there's a player that they're familiar with that they're saying taking a penalty. Mm. Now, now, guys, I, um, I mean, I've stopped calling or trying to predict this tournament when Senegal lost to Ivory Coast. I think we, we've talked about how this is a tournament of surprises, but we still have to try and understand what the dynamics are going into a game like Nigeria v South Africa. Yeah, of course. And you're wise to stop with the prediction because I have as well. Although, to be fair, uh, it's not really much of a hot take. But before the tournament started, I had a sneaky feeling, and Mimi would like to hear this but as well, but I thought Nigeria would go all the way from the beginning. <laughs> Oh, that's um, good. <laughs> so I'm still in a tournament of upsets. I'm still, I'm still one for one. Um, but no, I, I, it's even me. It's difficult for me to even back that out loud. This is the first time I vocalised that. Off, I did it on my own podcast before. But yeah, I even in this game here, I'm thinking because we're so late into the tournament. Traditionally speaking, teams don't really like to go hammer and tongs. I know. In the knockout rounds, Nigeria have been a little bit stronger than what we saw earlier on in the tournament. South Africa's defense has proven to be quite strong, as has Nigeria's defense. I'm thinking it will probably go stalemate in regular time. And then probably South Africa, beyond extra time, to penalties, and they'll win. I think South Africa will win. It's a really interesting matchup in terms of a clash of styles. Look, Nigeria throughout this tournament, they've averaged 45% possession of the ball. They don't really want it too much. Uh, they're more comfortable sitting back in this 3-4-3 formation, which the coach Jose Pacero really started using during this tournament. Prior to this, he was being criticized because he would stick with a 4-4-2, which often looked more like a 4-2-4 that was like sort of split horizontally and it looked really disjointed. And he switches to this 3-4-3 or, or 5-2-3, whatever you want to call it. And... <laughs> All of a sudden, Nigeria don't really want the ball. They're sitting back. They're defending very, very well. Players like Ola Aina, Trustekong have had great tournaments. And Calvin Bassi as the well. Ball, Calvin Bassi, oh my goodness. Yeah. So, yeah. so good. <laughs> but when they do get the ball, they're very vertical. And you just have to look at that goal uh, against Angola. You know, if you get caught out with players, you know, not tracking back, and if they're out of position with two or three passes, Nigeria can get behind your your, your defenders and they can create a goal-scoring opportunity. Um, whereas South Africa, they're different. They they do want the ball, I feel like, because of their great team chemistry, because they have eight and a half players from Mamelodi Sundowns. They can break you down, you know, uh, very quickly with one touch passing and combination passing and third man off, off the ball runs. But Nigeria also are very like well set up to play against a team that has possession of the ball. So 
it's not about which style is better. It's about which team is going to execute their style of play better. So it's going to be a tough one to predict, but I think Nigeria might go through. So you're calling it for Nigeria? Yeah, look, Nigeria have been creating a lot of chances, even in their, their style of play. They have been creating a lot of chances. Victor Osimhen has created so many chances. Yeah. And Jose Pacero, the coach, he's used this analogy of the ketchup bottle. He says sometimes when you squeeze the ketchup bottle, just a little bit of ketchup comes out. And sometimes when you squeeze it, too much comes out. And he says, we're doing the right things. We're squeezing the ketchup bottle, but just a little bit's coming out at the moment. But he feels like when they do get, when Osman, for example, gets that first goal, maybe the floodgates will open and they'll, they'll start scoring uh, two, three goals per game. I don't know. We have just two games to go, Mimi. I, I, I don't know if, yeah. if, this is, if this is how it's going to end. But an interesting point will be the fact that South Africa beat Nigeria in the Grammys last night when Tyler <laughs> won <laughs> Best African Music Performance. Over Davido and Brenner Boy. So it's like repeat or revenge. Mimi, where's your mind? My mind is I'm staying on the fence on this one. I even had, <laughs> I was even stuck in the lift. There was somebody from Ivory Coast arguing with somebody from DRC. And then somebody from South Africa asked me my heritage. I said to him, I'm from Nigeria. He's like, we're going to beat you on Wednesday. And I had to remind him, well, we beat you in 2019 in the quarterfinals. And then I walked out the lift. So <laughs> we just, we just never know. So I'm just going to, I tipped, I guess I did tip Nigeria. Um, once we got through the group stages as one of the teams now, one of the favorites that I see going to the final, just because I think they've been steadily putting in the results. Uh, it hasn't been, as we said, scoring lots of goals, but it seems to me that of the three teams that are in semifinals, they haven't conceded very many goals. So if you look at DRC, if you look at Nigeria, if you look at South Africa, they haven't really, they haven't conceded that many goals. It's been a lot about their defense. So it's teams have had very strong defenses who are, we're now seeing through to the semis. Mm. Now, now let's talk about that fairy tale that has been Ivory Coast. They got through by the skin of their teeth again, Ahmed. Is the fairy tale continuing against DRC? It looks like they could they could pull it off. I mean, if they've done what they've done already. I mean, looking at their squad, it even feels weird calling it a fairy tale, right? Like, <laughs> this is a very, very, very stacked team we're talking about. On paper, before a ball was kicked, I'd say probably the strongest squad in the entire tournament. But you would be a little bit foolish to rule them out at this stage. I'm reminded of, particularly in that last game against Mali, like, I'm reminded of just, if you're a fan of wrestling, WWE, WWF, The Undertaker. There's this one lasting image I have of him where his hand just raises from the dirt <laughs> after he's been buried. Like, that is what Ivory Coast yeah. is at this tournament. As fun as DRC have been to watch in this tournament, I wouldn't want to see them go home. I think they deserve as good as they've got this tournament. But I just can't, I can't rule out. I've ruled out Ivory Coast <laughs> so too many times, like three too times maybe. In this tournament. I haven't. Like, I've been really good as mine. I've not ruled them out at all. So I've actually been doing really well with them. I'm going to, I'm going to follow Mimi. I'm going to stick to them. I'm going to say Ivory Coast to win that one. Yeah. Look at it this way. One of my very close Congolese friends, he said to me, even called me specifically today to tell me that he'd predicted since, you know, the finish of group stages that DRC were going to be in the final. I said, well, wait and see come Wednesday. <laughs> it's, look, it's a very convenient prediction to make if you're Congolese. I mean, I predicted Ghana would go far. <laughs> Let's face it. <laughs> but, 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 my, um, I can't forget the fact that the first game they won was their last game, and then they they won with three goals after drawing so many times. It seems like they they've been doing just what they need to do, and they've been grinding results. The question is, would it be enough against the host nation that has already steamrolled through Senegal? Dear Congo. Even though they didn't win in the group stages, I thought they played well enough to win some of their matches. And even, you know, 
throughout this cal- or last calendar year, 2023, they've been absolutely on fire. They were one of uh, the men's national teams of the year uh, nominations for the CAF Awards just because they got so hot. They weren't even supposed to be at this tournament, the way their qualifying campaign was going. And then they hired Sebastian de Sabra halfway through. And with him, they've been nonstop uh, winning. I think they might have only lost one match since then. Um, and what they do a really good job of, they line up in like a 4-2-3-1. Um, since Cameroon was eliminated from this tournament, they are now the team that crosses the ball the most. And Arthur Mesuaku in particular, uh, he's the the player that has the most total crosses in this tournament. And Elia Meshek on the right wing uh, does something similar as well. So they, they, they're they a very uh, direct team, even though they're they when they have possession of the ball, they like to play on the ground, forward, and then they get to the wings and they tend to put in these crosses. But they defend very well as well, as, as we've all mentioned. So they're going to be a tough task for, for Cote d'Ivoire, absolutely. I think this is another match that could be uh, 50-50. <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not really surprised mm. by, by them doing this well. Uh, I would be surprised if they beat Cote d'Ivoire mm. just because of the immaterial, intangible factors of hosting a tournament and having that crowd behind you. So if I'm, if I'm listening to you guys, then we are having a Nigeria-Cote d'Ivoire final well many Ivorians that i spoke to on here said that that's what they see in the final uh, what not that they would like to see in the final this this is also south africa versus nigeria for those that don't know is a very heated rivalry fun but heated you know when nigeria were at, at their golden era in the 90s uh, they had won the 94 african cup of nations and then they were expected to win the 96 cup of nations remember they won the 96 summer olympic football tournament they, they won a gold medal there but because of some political issues, there was an activist in Nigeria. He got the death penalty by uh, Nigeria's military regime at the time. As a result, Nelson Mandela spoke out and South Africa subsequently subsequently won. But if you speak to any Nigerian, they said, you know, if we were there, we for sure would have beat you. And so that really sparked an interesting football rivalry uh, that continues to this day. <laughs> It's always a pleasure to hear Mahe give us, you know, the, the story behind the story. It's a great one. I'll take any final words. Yeah, I mean, I I think so. I think DRC are very experienced in this stage of the tournament for sure. Um, and I don't think we should rule them out at all, or even South Africa, to be honest, in the competition. Both sides have proven to us that when it comes to penalties, they can get the job done. Um, so I, I think it'll be quite tricky if it does go all the way to penalties. So I would suspect that both of them who've been very strong defensively will try and find that little chance to get in between the lines and just take that chance on, on, on target. But may the best team win. win. I'm just, on, I'm going to be on the fence for this one because I cannot pick between both teams. Sorry to say, I just can't, I can't predict, um, for that one. I think it's going to be a really even tricky between, one. Even between, even between Nigeria and Ivory Coast, if, if it's a final prediction we are making. You're asking me to pick loyalties between my country. So <laughs> what do you think the answer is? <laughs> if Ghana were in the final, what would your answer be? <laughs> if, if Ghana was in the final, I wouldn't care. <laughs> well, you, you, I know what. You've been wearing your jersey until you got knocked out and you took off your jersey. <laughs> so, um, um, Mahe, yeah. Mahe, talk to me. Um, Nigeria or Ivory Coast? carrying the trophy in the end it's one of those things where rationally i think nigeria are set up better to win this tournament but then irrationally i think about you know Cote d'Ivoire, they haven't really you can't really judge them rationally in this tournament uh there's there's there are other factors happening you know there are there's the spirit of the nation there's the unity there's the home home support um, so you're asking me to pick between my brain and my heart, and usually I follow my heart. So I think I think Cote d'Ivoire <laughs> are probably going to win this tournament. 
<laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Well, it's it's been a brain-defying tournament, to be fair. So, Ahmed, are you inclined to follow Maher's heart or his brain? I'm more inclined to follow his heart. I think that what this tournament has taught us is that you like get, f- football is not played on paper and you cannot afford to just come in and be like, oh, you know, I recognize these guys or these guys are like sort of the better team, I guess. It just doesn't work like that. And I think that's what makes this tournament so great. Um, oh, yeah, I, I can't I can't count against Ivory Coast again. Like it would it would just make for such a very symmetrical ending, wouldn't it? I don't know. I don't know, guys. I feel like one of the most unpredictable teams in this tournament has been Nigeria in terms of their form on the pitch. Nigeria was not a, was not known as a balanced side top to bottom when we were coming but in. But then that's why you've had Pusero. Exactly. It, exactly. starts, it, starts, two, it starts with 3-4-3, three, three, but once we're you know, defending throughout the game, it's five at the back. And that's worked so exactly. far for, for Nigeria in terms of that's the defense. That's number one. That's number one. Number two, Nigeria was expected to be on paper, was expected to be built around Ozimhen. He's been doing the work. He's been drawing the defenders. But the productive thing, if you have a quality striker like that, is use him to create space. And that's exactly the script that they've stuck to. I feel like they have a formula that works, which is why I'm, which is why I am I am tempted to disagree. I mean, I'll be happy if they lose. I'll come and laugh at Peter and Mimi, but I'm tempted to disagree. Keep with dreaming, you. mate. Just accept that Ghana <laughs> went out early. Don't be hating on us. We still have better Jolov. It's not a problem. It's not a problem. According to you. <laughs> According Look, to guys, you. we're going to wrap this up. We can continue. Mimi and I, we can do this for 24 hours. But we're going to have to wrap it up. Thank you very, very much, Ahmed Shubal, for joining us. And, of course, Mahem Mizahi is an absolute pleasure. This has been the Africa Football Showdown. Many thanks to all of our partner stations who broadcast this on radio in Ghana, in Nigeria, in Liberia, in Zambia, all other countries in the continent remember you can listen to us on spotify on apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcasts or you can watch us on youtube we'll be back with another exciting episode of the africa football showdown and i promise you peter okoche will be back catch you next time